0: Section 1 of Youth This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Youth by Leo Tolstoy translated by CJ Hogarth Section 1 Chapters 1 through 4 Chapter 1 What I consider to have been the beginning of my youth I have said that my friendship with Dmitri opened up for me a new view of my life and of its aim and relations. The essence of that view lay in the conviction that the destiny of man is to strive for moral improvement, and that such improvement is at once easy, possible, and lasting. Hitherto, however, I had found pleasure only in the new ideas which I discover to arise from that conviction, and in the forming of brilliant plans for a moral, active future while all the time my life had been continuing along its old, petty, muddled, pleasure-seeking course, and the same virtuous thoughts which I and my adored friend Dmitri—my own marvelous misha, as I used to call him to myself in a whisper—had been wont to exchange with one another still pleased my intellect, but left my sensibility untouched. Nevertheless, there came a moment when those thoughts swept into my head with a sudden freshness and force of moral revelation, which left me aghast at the amount of time which I had been wasting, and made me feel as though I must at once, that very second, apply those thoughts to life, with the firm intention of never again changing them. It is from that moment that I date the beginning of my youth. I was then nearly sixteen tutors still attended to give me lessons, St. Jerome still acted as general supervisor of my education, and, willy-nilly, I was being prepared for the university. In addition to my studies, my occupations included certain vague dreamings and ponderings, a number of gymnastic exercises to make myself the finest athlete in the world, a good deal of aimless-thoughtless wandering through the rooms of the house, but more especially along the maidservant's and much looking at myself in the mirror. From the latter, however, I always turned away with a vague feeling of depression, almost of repulsion. Not only did I feel sure that my exterior was ugly, but I could derive no comfort from any of the usual consolations under such circumstances. I could not say, for instance, that I had at least an expressive, clever, or refined face, for there was nothing whatever expressive about it its features were of the most humdrum, dull, and unbecoming type, with small gray eyes which seemed to me, whenever I regarded them in the mirror, to be stupid rather than clever. Of manly bearing I possessed even less, since, although I was not exactly small of stature, and had moreover plenty of strength for my years, every feature in my face was of the meek, sleepy-looking, indefinite type. Even refinement was lacking in it, since, on the contrary, it precisely resembled that of a simple-looking mujik while i also had the same big hands and feet as he at the time all this seemed to me very shameful chapter 2 springtime easter of the year when i entered the university fell late in april so that the examinations were fixed for st thomas's week easter week AND I HAD TO SPEND GOOD FRIDAY IN FASTING AND FINALLY GETTING MYSELF READY FOR THE ORDEAL. FOLLOWING UPON WET SNOW, THE KIND OF STUFF WHICH KARL Ivanitch USED TO DESCRIBE AS A CHILD FOLLOWING ITS FATHER, THE WEATHER HAD FOR THREE DAYS BEEN BRIGHT AND MILD AND STILL. NOT A CLOT OF SNOW WAS NOW TO BE SEEN IN THE STREETS, AND THE DIRTY SLUSH HAD GIVEN PLACE TO WET, SHINING PAVEMENTS AND coursing RIVULETS. THE LAST ICICLES ON THE ROOFS WERE FAST MELTING IN THE SUNSHINE. Buds were swelling on the trees in the little garden, the path leading across the courtyard to the stables was soft instead of being a frozen ridge of mud, and mossy grass was showing green between the stones around the entrance steps. It was just that particular time in spring, when the season exercises the strongest influence upon the human soul. When clear sunlight illuminates everything, yet sheds no warmth when rivulets run trickling under one's feet, when the air is charged with an odorous freshness, and when the bright blue sky is streaked with long transparent clouds. For some reason or another the influence of this early stage in the birth of spring always seems to me more perceptible and more impressive in a great town than in the country. One sees less, but one feels more. I was standing near the window through the double frames of which the morning sun was throwing its mote-flecked beams upon the floor of what seemed to me my intolerably wearisome schoolroom, and working out a long algebraical equation on the blackboard. In one hand I was holding a ragged, long-suffering algebra, and in the other a small piece of chalk which had already besmeared my hands, my face, and the elbows of my jacket. Nicola, clad in an apron, and with his sleeves rolled up, was picking out the putty from the window-frames with a pair of nippers, and unfastening the screws. The window looked out upon the little garden. At length this occupation and the noise which he was making over it arrested my attention. At the moment I was in a very cross-dissatisfied frame of mind, for nothing seemed to be going right with me. I had made a mistake at the very beginning of my algebra, and so should have to work it out again. Twice I had let the chalk drop. I was conscious that my hands and face were whitened all over. The sponge had rolled away into a corner, and the noise of Nicola's operations was fast getting on my nerves. I had a feeling as though I wanted to fly into a temper and grumble at some one, so I threw down chalk and algebra alike, and began to pace the room. Then suddenly I remembered that to-day we were to go to confession, and that therefore I must refrain from doing anything wrong. Next, with equal suddenness, I relapsed into an extraordinarily good-humoured frame of mind, and walked across to Nicola. "'Let me help you, Nicola,' I said, trying to speak as pleasantly as I possibly could. The idea that I was performing a meritorious action in thus suppressing my ill-temper, and offering to help him, increased my good-humour all the more. By this time the putty had been chipped out and the screws removed, yet, though Nicola pulled with might and main at the cross-piece, the window-frame refused to budge. "'If it comes out as soon as he and I begin to pull it together,' I thought, "'it will be rather a shame, as then I shall have nothing more of the kind to do to-day.' Suddenly the frame yielded a little at one side and came out. "'Where shall I put it?' I said. "'Let ME see to it, if you please,' replied Nicola, evidently surprised, as well as seemingly not over-pleased at my zeal. We must not leave it here, but carry it away to the lumber-room, where I keep all the frames stored and numbered.' "'Oh, but I can manage it,' I said, as I lifted it up. I verily believe that if the lumber-room had been a couple of versts away, and the frame twice as heavy as it was, I should have been the more pleased.' I felt as though I wanted to tire myself out in performing this service for Nicola. When I returned to the room, the bricks and screws had been replaced on the windowsill, and Nicola was sweeping the debris, as well as a few torpid flies, out of the open window. The fresh, fragrant air was rushing into and filling all the room, while with it came also the dull murmur of the city and the twittering of sparrows in the garden. Everything was brilliant light, The room looked cheerful, and a gentle spring breeze was stirring Nicola's hair and the leaves of my algebra. Approaching the window I sat down upon the sill, turned my eyes downwards toward the garden, and fell into a brown study. Something new to me—something extraordinarily potent and unfamiliar—had suddenly invaded my soul. The wet ground on which here and there a few yellowish stalks and blades of bright green grass were to be seen the little rivulets glittering in the sunshine, and sweeping clouds of earth and tiny chips of wood along with them, the reddish twigs of the lilac with their swelling buds which nodded just beneath the window, the fussy twitterings of birds as they fluttered in the bush below, the blackened fence shining wet from the snow which had lately melted off it, and most of all the raw, odorous air and radiant sunlight—all spoke to me, clearly and unmistakably of something new and beautiful, of something which, though I cannot repeat it here as it was then expressed to me, I will try to reproduce so far as I understood it. Everything spoke to me of beauty, happiness, and virtue, as three things which were both easy and possible for me, and said that no one of them could exist without the other two, since beauty, happiness, and virtue were one. How did I never come to understand that before? I cried to myself. How did I ever manage to be so wicked? Oh, but how good, how happy I could be—nay, I will be—in the future. At once, at once, yes, this very minute I will become another Being, and begin to live differently. For all that I continued sitting on the window-sill, continued merely dreaming and doing nothing. Have you ever— on a summer's day gone to bed in dull rainy weather, and waking just at sunset, opened your eyes and seen through the square space of the window, the space where the linen blind is blowing up and down, and beating its rod upon the window-sill, the rain-soaked shadowy purple vista of an avenue of lime-trees, with a damp garden path lit up by the clear slanting beams of the sun, and then suddenly heard the joyous sounds of bird-life in the garden and seen insects flying to and fro at the open window, and glittering in the sunlight, and smelt the fragrance of the rain-washed air, and thought to yourself, Am I not ashamed to be lying in bed on such an evening as this? And leaping joyously to your feet, gone out into the garden, and reveled in all that welter of life? If you have, then you can imagine for yourself the overpowering sensation which was then possessing me. CHAPTER Three, DREAMS TODAY I WILL MAKE MY CONFESSION AND PURGE MYSELF OF EVERY SIN, I THOUGHT TO MYSELF. NOR WILL I EVER COMMIT ANOTHER ONE. AT THIS POINT I RECALLED ALL THE PECCADILLOES WHICH MOST TROUBLED MY CONSCIENCE. I WILL GO TO CHURCH REGULARLY EVERY SUNDAY, AS WELL AS READ THE GOSPEL AT THE CLOSE OF EVERY HOUR THROUGHOUT THE DAY. What is more, I will set aside, out of the cheque which I shall receive each month after I have gone to the university, two and a half roubles—a tenth of my monthly allowance—for people who are poor but not exactly beggars, yet without letting any one know anything about it. Yes, I will begin to look out for people like that—orphans or old women—at once, yet never tell a soul what I am doing for them. Also. I will have a room here of my very own—St. Jerome's, probably—and look after it myself, and keep it perfectly clean. I will never let any do anything for me, for every one is just a human being like myself. Likewise, I will walk every day, not drive, to the University, even if some one gives me a droshky—Russian phaeton. I will sell it, and devote money to the poor—everything I will do exactly and always—what that always meant I could not possibly have said but at least I had a vivid consciousness of its connoting some kind of prudent moral and irreproachable life. I will get up all my lectures thoroughly, and go over all the subjects beforehand, so that at the end of my first course I may come out on top and write a thesis. During my second course also I will get up everything beforehand, so that I may soon be transferred to the third course, and at eighteen come out on top in the examinations, and receive two gold medals and go on to be Master of Arts, and Doctor, and the first Scholar in Europe. Yes, in all Europe I mean to be the first Scholar. Well, what next? I asked myself at this point. Suddenly it struck me that dreams of this sort were a form of pride, a sin which I should have to confess to the priest that very evening. So I returned to the original thread of my meditations. When getting up my lectures I will go to the Forobivi Gori, Sparrow Hills, a public park near Moscow, and choose some spot under a tree, and read my lectures over there. Sometimes I will take with me something to eat—cheese or a pie from Pedotis, or something of the kind. After that I will sleep a little, and then read some good book or other, or else draw pictures, or play on some instrument. Certainly I must learn to play the flute. Perhaps she, too, will be walking on the Forobivigori, and will approach me one day and say, "Who are you?" And I shall look at her oh so sadly and say that I am the son of a priest, and that I am happy only when I am there alone, quite alone. Then she will give me her hand, and say something to me, and sit down beside me, so every day we shall go to the same spot and be friends together, and I shall kiss her. But no! That would not be right. On the contrary, from this day forward I never mean to look at a woman again. Never, never again do I mean to walk with a girl, nor even to go near one if I can help it. Yet, of course, in three years' time, when I have come of age, I shall marry. Also I mean to take as much exercise as ever I can, and to do gymnastics every day, so that when I have turned twenty-five I shall be stronger even than Rappo. On my first day's training I mean to hold out half a pood. The pood equals forty Russian pounds at arm's length for five minutes, and the next day twenty-one pounds, and the third day twenty-two pounds, and so on, until at last I can hold out four poods in each hand, and be stronger even than a porter. Then if ever any one should try to insult me, or should begin to speak disrespectfully of her, I shall take him, so, by the front of his coat, and lift him up an arshin. the arshin equals two feet three inches—or two with one hand, and just hold him there, so that he may feel my strength and cease from his conduct. Yet that too would not be right—no, no, no, it would not matter. I should not hurt him, merely show him that I—' Let no one blame me because the dreams of my youth were as foolish as those of my childhood and boyhood. I am sure that, even if it be my fate to live to extreme old age and to continue my story with the years, I— An old man of seventy shall be found dreaming dreams just as impossible and childish as those I am dreaming now. I shall be dreaming of some lovely Maria who loves me the toothless old man as she might love a mazeppa, of some imbecile son who, through some extraordinary chance, has suddenly become a Minister of State, of my suddenly receiving a windfall of a million roubles. I am sure that there exists no human being, no human age, to whom or to which that gracious, consolatory power of dreaming is totally a stranger. Yet, save for the one general feature of magic and impossibility, the dreams of each human being, of each age of man, have their own distinguishing characteristics. At the period upon which I look as having marked the close of my boyhood and the beginning of my youth, four leading sentiments formed the basis of my dreams. The first of those sentiments was love for her—for an imaginary woman whom I always pictured the same in my dreams, and whom I somehow expected to meet some day and somewhere. This she of mine had a little of sonetchka in her—a little of Masha, as Masha could look when she stood washing linen over the clothes-tub—and a little of a certain woman with pearls round her fair white neck, whom I had once seen long, long ago at a theatre, in a box below our own. My second sentiment was a craving for love. I wanted every one to know me and to love me. I wanted to be able to utter my name, Nikola Urtenyev, and at once to see every one thunderstruck at it, and come crowding round me and thanking me for something or another. I hardly knew what. My third sentiment was the expectation of some extraordinary, glorious happiness that was impending—some happiness so strong and assured as to verge upon ecstasy. Indeed, so firmly persuaded was I that very, very soon some unexpected chance would suddenly make me the richest and most famous man in the world, that I lived in constant tremulous expectation of this magic good fortune befalling me. I was always thinking to myself that IT is a beginning, and that I should go on thereafter to attain everything that a man could wish for. Consequently, I was ever hurrying from place to place in the belief that it must be beginning just where I happened not to be. Lastly, my fourth and principal sentiment of all was abhorrence of myself, mingled with regret, yet a regret so blended with the certain expectation of happiness to which I have referred that it had nothing of sorrow. It seemed to me that it would be so easy and natural for me to tear myself away from my past and to remake it—to forget all that had been, and to begin my life with all its relations anew that the past never troubled me, never clung to me at all. I even found a certain pleasure in detesting the past, and in seeing it in a darker light than the true one. This note of regret, and of a curious longing for perfection, were the chief mental impressions which I gathered from that new stage of my growth—impressions which imparted new principles to my view of myself, of men, and of God's world. O good and consoling voice, which in later days, in sorrowful days, when my soul yielded silently to the sway of life's falseness and depravity, so often raised a sudden bold protest against all iniquity, as well as mercilessly exposed the past, commanded, nay, compelled me, to love only the pure vista of the present, and promised me all that was fair and happy in the future. O good and consoling voice, surely the day will never come when you are silent. CHAPTER Four, OUR FAMILY CIRCLE Papa was seldom at home that spring. Yet, whenever he was so, he seemed extraordinarily cheerful as he either strummed his favorite pieces on the piano, or looked roguishly at us and made jokes about us all, not excluding even Mimi. For instance, he would say that the Zarevich himself had seen Mimi at the rink, and fallen so much in love with her that he had presented a petition to the Synod for divorce or else that I had been granted an appointment as secretary to the Austrian Ambassador—a piece of news which he imparted to us with a perfectly grave face. Next he would frighten Katenka with some spiders, of which she was very much afraid, engage in an animated conversation with our friends Dubkoff and Nekhludoff, and tell us and our guests over and over again his plans for the year. Although these plans changed almost from day to day, and were forever contradicting one another, they seemed so attractive that we were always glad to listen to them. And Lubatska, in particular, would glue her eyes to his face so as not to lose a single word. One day his plan would be that he should leave my brother and myself at the university, and go and live with Lubatska in Italy for two years. Next, the plan would be that he should buy an estate in the south coast of the Crimea, and take us for an annual visit there. Next, that we should migrate en masse to St. Petersburg, and so forth. Yet, in addition to this unusual cheerfulness of his, another change had come over him of late—a change which greatly surprised me. This was that he had had some fashionable clothes made—an olive-coloured frock-coat, smart trousers with straps at the sides and a long wadded greatcoat which fitted him to perfection. Often, too, there was a delightful smell of scent about him, when he came home from a party, more especially when he had been to see a lady of whom Mimi never spoke, but with a sigh and a face that seemed to say, "'Poor orphans! how dreadful!' It is a good thing that she is gone now." And so on, and so on. From Nicola—for Papa never spoke to us of his gambling—I had learnt that he— papa had been very fortunate in play that winter and so had won an extraordinary amount of money all of which he had placed in the bank after vowing that he would play no more that spring evidently it was his fear of being unable to resist again doing so that was rendering him anxious to leave for the country as soon as possible Indeed, he ended by deciding not to wait until I had entered the university, but to take the girls to Petrovsky immediately after Easter, and to leave Woloda and myself to follow them at a later season. All that winter, until the opening of spring, Woloda had been inseparable from Dubkoff, while at the same time the pair of them had cooled greatly towards Dmitri. Their chief amusements, so I gathered from conversations overheard, were continual drinking of champagne, sledge-driving past the windows of a lady with whom both of them appeared to be in love, and dancing with her. Not at children's parties, either, but at real balls. It was this last fact which, despite our love for one another, placed a vast gulf between Wiloda and myself. We felt that the distance between a boy still taking lessons under a tutor and a man who danced at real grown-up balls was too great to allow of their exchanging mutual ideas. Katenka, too, seemed grown up now and read innumerable novels, so that the idea that she would some day be getting married no longer seemed to me a joke. Yet, though she and Woloda were thus grown up, they never made friends with one another, but on the contrary seemed to cherish a mutual contempt. In general, when Katenka was at home alone, nothing but novels amused her—and they but slightly. But as soon as ever a visitor of the opposite sex called, she at once grew lively and amiable and used her eyes for saying things which I could not then understand. It was only later, when she one day informed me in conversation that the only thing a girl was allowed to indulge in was coquetry—coquetry coquetry of the eyes, I mean—that I understood those strange contortions of her features which to every one else had seemed a matter for no surprise at all. Lubachka also had begun to wear what was almost a long dress—a dress which almost concealed her goose-shaped feet yet she still remained as ready a weeper as ever. She dreamed now of marrying, not a hussar, but a singer or an instrumentalist, and accordingly applied herself to her music with greater diligence than ever. St. Jerome, who knew that he was going to remain with us only until my examinations were over, and so had obtained for himself a new post in the family of some count or another, now looked with contempt upon the members of our household. He stayed indoors very little, took to smoking cigarettes, then all the rage. And was forever whistling lively tunes on the edge of a card, Mimi daily grew more and more despondent, as though now that we were beginning to grow up, she looked for nothing good from any one or anything. When on the day of which I am speaking I went in to luncheon, I found only Mimi, Katenka, Lubotshka, and Saint Jerome in the dining room. Papa was away and Wiloda in his own room doing some preparation work for his examinations in company with a party of his comrades, wherefore he had requested that lunch should be sent to him there. Of late Mimi had usually taken the head of the table, and as none of us had any respect for her, luncheon had lost most of its refinement and charm. That is to say, the meal was no longer what it had been in Mama's or our Grandmother's time—namely, a kind of rite which brought all the family together at a given hour and divided the day into two halves we allowed ourselves to come in as late as the second course to drink wine in tumblers st jerome himself set us the example to roll about on our chairs to depart without saying grace and so on in fact luncheon had ceased to be a family ceremony in the old days at petrovsky every one had been used to wash and dress for the meal and then to repair to the drawing-room as the appointed hour, two o'clock, drew near, and passed the time of waiting in lively conversation. Just as the clock in the servants' hall was beginning to whirr before striking the hour, Foucault would enter with noiseless footsteps, and throwing his napkin over his arm, and assuming a dignified rather severe expression, would say in loud measured tones, "'Luncheon is ready.' Thereupon, with pleased, cheerful faces, we would form a procession—the elders going first and the juniors following—and, with much rustling of starched petticoats and subdued creaking of boots and shoes, would proceed to the dining-room, where, still talking in undertones, the company would seat themselves in their accustomed places. Or, again at Moscow, we would all of us be standing before the table ready laid in the hall, talking quietly among ourselves, as we waited for our grandmother, whom the butler, Gabriel, had gone to acquaint with the fact that luncheon was ready. Suddenly the door would open, there would come the faint swish of a dress and the sound of footsteps, and our grandmother, dressed in a mob-cap trimmed with a quaint old lilac bow, and wearing either a smile or a severe expression on her face, according as the state of her health inclined her, would issue from her room. Gabriel would hasten to precede her to her armchair. the other chairs would make a scraping sound, and with a feeling as though a cold shiver—the precursor of her appetite—were running down one's back. One would seize upon one's damp, starched napkin, nibble a morsel or two of bread, and, rubbing one's hand softly under the table, gaze with eager, radiant impatience at the steaming plates of soup which the butler was beginning to dispense in order of ranks and ages, or according to the favor of our grandmother. On the present occasion, however, I was conscious of neither excitement nor pleasure when I went in to luncheon. Even the mingled chatter of Mimi, the girls, and St. Jerome about the horrible boots of our Russian tutor, the pleated dresses worn by the young Princesses, Kornikoff, and so forth, chatter which at any other time would have filled me with sincerity of contempt which I should have been at no pains to conceal, at all events so far as Lubotshka and Katenka were concerned, failed to shake the benevolent frame of mind into which I had fallen. I was unusually good-humoured that day, and listened to everything with a smile and a studied air of kindness. Even when I asked for the kvass, I did so politely, while I lost not a moment in agreeing with St. Jerome when he told me that it was undoubtedly more correct to say je peux than je puis. Yet I must confess to a certain disappointment at finding that no one paid any particular attention to my politeness and good humor. After luncheon Lubachka showed me a paper on which she had written down a list of her sins, upon which I observed that, although the idea was excellent so far as it went, it would be still better for her to write down her sins on her soul—a very different matter." "'Why is it a very different matter?' asked Lubotshka. "'Never mind. That is all right. You do not understand me.' And I went upstairs to my room, telling St. Jerome that I was going to work, but in reality purposing to occupy the hour and a half before confession-time in writing down a list of my daily tasks and duties which should last me all my life together with a statement of my life's aim and the rules by which I meant unswervingly to be guided end of section one recording by bill borst